have you included training in the deal? We'll worry about training afterwards. What about implementation services? Who's going to deliver them? Haven't thought about that stuff. Well, then you clearly haven't thought about customer success. And after you've deeply discounted your deal to win it, money's going to have to come from somewhere and the customer's not then going to be prepared to give you more money. So that's one that always, you know, surprises reps when we talk about it. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Jeff Goldstein. Jeff is the founder of salesleadersonly.com. And he's the author of a new book titled Winning the Six-Figure Sale, a sales leader's guide to win more big deals with my proven three-step system. And so we're going to talk about Jeff's three-step system today. In our conversation, we get into how to win big deals and how to do it in a consistent fashion, which is problematic for many sales organizations. Because as Jeff shares, the problem starts with sales leaders, many of whom have experience and instinct, but very little training or very little planning around big deal management. In fact, in his research, Jeff found sales leaders telling him that if 50% of their quarterly sales funnel was made up of less than 10 deals, let's say, 95% of them had no structured process or system to inspect assess, and coach their teams through these big deals in their funnels. So we dive into Jeff's three-step system for sales managers to use to improve their forecast accuracy and win rates by inspecting, assessing, and coaching big deals. And we dig into the details of each of these three steps because you'll see there's some sub-steps as well, including Jeff's idea around what he calls the look-back question. It's a great question to integrate into your sales management process because it really forces sellers to come to terms with whether they really understand their buyer and their priorities and how and why they're going to make the decision. So we're going to get into all that and much, much more. But before we get to Jeff, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, well, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could give us a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jeff, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks so much. A real pleasure to be here. A pleasure to have you here. So you're joining us from north of the border, land of endless summer at this time of year. Yes, indeed. Well, Toronto, not not quite so much as Calgary, but uh, we are we are in full bloom in uh, in summer. We're quite enjoying it. Yeah, I remember years ago when I was still playing golf, <laughs> gave up. Um, but on vacation at a resort somewhere in California, and, and uh, I was playing with this guy who was an attorney from Ottawa. And he played like 500 rounds of golf a year. But he said the key was, during the summer, he played 36 holes a day multiple times during the week. I guess and he was playing you know, into the you know, 9, 10 o'clock period, so... Guess you gotta love golf to do that. Yeah, and you know, unlike California, you know, we don't start till end of April and we finish by November, so it's half the year you have. So, so he has to play twice yeah, well, as much to to do to do those kind of numbers for sure. Well, he was doing twice as much, and then he'd go away to Florida for weeks at a time and yeah, yeah play thirty six holes a day there. And it's just like, well, anyway, let's let's talk about you. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, I'm a I'm an engineer by training. But I've spent my entire career as uh, as a salesperson, right? So, mm -hmm. finished school, uh, spent a couple of work terms through my engineering program with IBM, and then uh, as a you know fresh new grad, 
moved from Waterloo was where I went to school out to Vancouver for the first of a couple of times and started mm. with Hewlett Packard. So, Got it. you know, began my sales career when Hewlett Packard was still Hewlett Packard and wasn't broken up and all that the good HP stuff. HP 3000. I, I sold HP 3000s. There you go, Andy. Yeah, well, dating you and me. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so I spent the 80s really with Hewlett Packard. Uh, you know, I left... I left because uh, HP was getting too big. At the time, it was a $12 billion sales organization. And I got tired of people telling me, you work at HP, it's got a great culture, but you'll never make any money. And I thought as a sales guy, that was part of the plan, right? So, right. so I left HP, um, went to a small electronics distributor, PC business for a while. Then I joined Data General, which oh, was yeah. a billion wow. and a half dollar. We're touching, touching all the bases. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> You know, and and uh, uh, DG at the time was a billion and a half dollar company. It got bought by EMC, which was a forty billion dollar company. But then it did get too big, so I took some time off uh, and joined NetApp. I don't know if you're familiar okay. with NetApp. I am. Do you know Laurie Harmon? Uh, no. Oh, she VP of Inside Sales for them. Uh, been on the show. Oh, fantastic! So I spent fifteen years at uh, at NetApp. You know, when I started. I was responsible for the country, you know, after, after my, um, my last, my last assignment at Data General, I became, you know, a country manager, then left, joined NetApp as VP of sales and general manager. And, uh, you know, and when I started, we were 15 people and 17 million. And when I left 15 years later, NetApp Canada was about 200 million with 125 people. So really experienced explosive growth, um, it was a high growth organization, really enjoyed my run. It was fantastic. You know, I, mm-hmm. took a, I took a kick at retiring. You know, I was pretty young, but I, I had done well. I thought I could play more golf. Yeah, and, yeah you know, I, I tried that too. Yeah, it, it was February. By the time I cleaned out my sock drawer for the second time, my wife said, you know, you should go back and do another gig. So, so I, I joined Veeam Software. Uh, it, I was, you know, they're a backup and, and a data management mm-hmm. company. A billion and a half, about a billion dollar company, software company in the SaaS world and the cloud world to get some experience there. And then retired about two and a half years ago. But, you know, I'm I'm too young to do nothing. I have way too much energy to do nothing. I I did want to play golf. You know, my criteria, Andrew, was no forecast calls, no employees and no travel to places I don't want to go. That was how I decided, you know, so I started up salesleadersonly.com really as a a way to share some of what I've learned in my almost four decades of sales leadership experience. Mm -hmm. And I've really focused on one part of the sales training continuum. And that's really all about helping sales leaders inspect, assess, and coach big deals. How do you help them Mm -hmm. run better big deal campaigns as sales leaders with their sales teams? And, you know, as I did my research, I discovered that's a pretty interesting niche because while there's a lot of sales training, most of it is on the top of the sales funnel. How do you prospect? Yeah. How do you qualify? How Almost do you handle all, objections? Yeah. But right. if, you, if you go to Amazon and look for big deal selling books, there's two or three in the last 10 years. And yet, if you think about what moves the forecast needle, it's your big deals. I call them big rocks. Yep. So, so that's kind of where I've focused and, and that's kind of where I'm spending my time now. And, uh, you know, I, I'm... As I say, I'm retired, but this is kind of a passion project for me. I really 
want to serve sales leaders and help them get better at this process? Because I think, you know, they have instinct and experience, most sales leaders, but no intentional or deliberate process to actually inspect, assess, and coach their team's big deals, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think, yeah, that, that, interest. Thank you for the background. Um, yeah, I started my consulting company back in the year 2000 specifically to teach startups and smaller companies how to win big deals, how to compete against the big guys. Because that's what I'd done working for startups for, for years as well, is no track record, no brand name, selling mission critical uh, systems. How do you win those deals? I know. So, yeah, we have a similar focus in some respects. Um, yeah, I mean, to your point about sales leaders may have experience or instinct, but a little training is that is sort of the, the nub of the matter with sales managers is they don't get trained. I mean, it's, it's, it's like we have this chain of things where, where we know that coaching, which part of what you talk about is, you know, the, the surest path to performance improvement for individual contributors. Yet we provide precious little training for sales managers to teach them how to do it. Yeah. I mean, think about how a sales leader gets his job or her job. They're typically great salespeople, you know, and, and early in their career, they're often unconsciously competent. So they produce results. They're not exactly sure how they produce them. Wow. And then we, right. we anoint yeah. them and we hand them a big quota and we say, you know, go be a sales leader. And they scratch their heads and they try to figure out their craft. And that's where instinct and experience over time helps them. But especially with new sales leaders, um, they really don't understand how to inspect the pipeline, how to assess the quality of their team's deals, how to coach their teams through all the steps in complex sales campaigns, and then how to mm -hmm. find the time to do all this stuff in their, what is a really hectic schedule. You address, you address that specific point in the book about the timing, which is... Yeah, and this has become more of a problem during you know the golden age of sales we're in, where we've got all this great technology to help us, but it also puts more emphasis on reporting. And you said you're, you had a manager told you at one point your job is not to report the news, your job is to go make the news, which I thought was a very wise thing for someone to tell you. You know, that, that has stuck with me. That's probably, he told me that probably 15 years ago, and I repeat that all the time. And you know, we have all these Salesforce and everybody has a CRM system, but your boss can look at those reports just like you can. It's not really about the reports. It's about, you know, moving the needle. And so mm -hmm. not about uh, reporting the news. It's about making the news. That's your job, sales leader. Go make the news, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's a great, a great statement. Hopefully people write that down when they hear it because, yeah, that... Yeah, I can't begin to count the number of times you know, I've heard from sales leaders that, yeah, I'd love to coach, but yeah, I'm just so busy with reporting requirements and other things that I, I, and you know, that my boss wants that. So I'm prioritizing that as opposed to helping my people get better. Totally agree. You, you know, I have the saying, what interests my boss fascinates me. And so, you know, especially when quarters get tough, we get to the end of the quarter, we spend more time forecasting the business than mm -hmm. we actually do going and help close it. So it is a, it certainly is a challenge. And some organizations, I, I've been in tech my whole career. Some large organizations, you know, do a weekly forecast call. I, I tell people I've done over 3,000 forecast calls. The math is not that tricky. <laughs> you know, once a week with me, with, with my team, once a week with my boss, over 25 years, you know, do the right. math. 
And then quarter end, it's every other day, and sometimes it's once a day fire drills. So we've, we, we really spend a lot of time forecasting. And I go, you know, forecasts are art, science, and fiction. The trouble is trying to figure out which one of those three that particular deal is. Is it art, is it science, or is it, is it uh, fiction, right? And it, it can be tricky. We spend way too much time forecasting instead of moving the needle. In my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that that well, you talk about this in the book is that yeah, you know, part of the function of of your three step process to inspect, assess, coaches is yeah, find problems before they happen. Right? Is is there's sort of this epidemic of no decisions in B two B sales. I mean, there's studies showing anywhere from fifty to eighty percent of qualified opportunities in a pipeline end up as no decision. Ye- to me, that's the worst of all possible outcomes, right? I'd rather lose a deal than have it go to no decision, because at least if it went, if, if I lost it, I, I knew I'd qualified it. <laughs> they were going to make a decision. Uh, if they're a no decision, it means you haven't done good discovery, you haven't done good qualification, and we can jump into details of that. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. You know, I had I had this epiphany um, with my boss, you know, where. He was saying, hey, Jeff, you're missing your forecast. This was in 2007, 2008 at Veeam. You're missing your forecast. And I, I'd go to my sales team and they're all saying, hey, Jeff, we're winning we're winning most of our big deals. We're not losing at all. And so I, I tell the story in the book. I took, took my office mm-hmm. manager and uh, we kind of dug into the data. We looked back a quarter and sure enough, the team had one of the top 20 deals that made up 47% of the pipeline. Here's another, you know. Track. Yeah, yeah. That quarter, there were 1,000 transactions in the pipeline. 20 of them made up 40% of the pipeline, right? So when you lose a deal and your boss says, just replace it with three weeks to go, there's no way to do that, right? No. But, uh, you know, we had a five-to-one win-loss ratio. But as it turned out, 45% of the deals got deferred into the next quarter, and 25% of them disappeared altogether. And I, when I... Teach my program, I, I ask sales leaders, you know, what do they think their win-loss ratio is? What's their deferred ratio? And what's their no decision ratio? Most know what their win-loss ratio is. Mm-hmm. Most don't know what their deferred ratio is. And most mm-hmm. don't know how many deals that were in their forecast, big deals at the start of the quarter, disappeared altogether. Because frankly, reps don't throw their hand up and say, hey, you know, I had a really good deal that got deferred. Or, hey, they decided to do nothing. Nobody talks about those. Everybody talks about wins, and if you push them, they talk about losses. But to me, that's the dirty little secret of the sales funnel. And despite all the Salesforce data we have, I, I, I provide this asset to the, to the sales leaders and say, just fill this out. You'll, it will freak you out. And I think, Andy, the recession exacerbates that problem because VPs of finance and you know, everybody's under pressure to only spend money if it's critical. And so the, what might have been good deals before or deals that your buyer would have bought from you before don't get funded and just don't happen. So it's, it's well, a yeah, but that, that gets back to it, But that can be accounted for in your process if you're inspecting because in a recession, what customers still have problems that need to be solved, but they might want a smaller portion of it solved. You know, what's, what's the time to value? for the solution. So if we can provide something that's a shorter time to value with more immediate payback, that'll still get funded, even in a recession. So that's you know, part of, we'll talk about your 10, 10 steps or modules in your process, but uh, that has to be in there. Yeah. 
Well, you know, part of the qualification process, especially in tough economic times, is, you know, is the deal strategically relevant, tactically urgent, and provide rapid time to value, right? Mm -hmm. think, think about all the work from home projects that got funded over the last 18 months that were never in budgets. Strategically relevant, okay. tactically urgent, provided rapid time to value. Three-year business process re-engineering projects kind of didn't get funded anymore, right? And so that, I use that in the qualification process as another filter for deals. Strategically relevant, tactically urgent, rapid time to value. If it doesn't have those three criteria, you need to look very closely. Because in tough economic times, I saw that in 2008, we saw it again now, those deals aren't mm -hmm. getting and despite the fact they're good deals and the technical buyer is very sincere when he says we're going to do it, but his boss or the finance guys are saying that less cash in, less cash out, that project's not getting funded. Sorry. Right? Well, but the time to value is really, I think, such a critical metric in any environment because I may have a different term for it, but, but using that term, it's when we have a, a high rate of no decisions, right? is what, what's happening is that the customer hasn't quantified the value they're going to get from the solution. And so they haven't even gotten to the point of deciding whether it's good or not. They're just deferring because we haven't, we haven't done this, right? We haven't, whether we haven't explained it clearly enough, we haven't presented the business case you know, parameters, we haven't helped them calculate it, or they're just not at that point. No one's going to make a decision without doing that calculation, if you can't reduce to dollars what the value is, you don't have a qualified account yet. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, when I taught my program, I had a, a customer who said to me, hey, Jeff, here's a, uh, an acronym that you can use. He didn't invent it. It came from a book who I can't, I can't recall where it came from. And it's called NOS, Needs, Outcomes, Solution, and, and uh, Evidence. And you know, most sellers, hey, th there's a need. Yes, they go right to a solution. They provide some reference accounts. What they forget to talk about is what is the business outcome that's mm -hmm. going to derive from this problem you're trying to solve? And again, in, you know, in the qualification process, I go, if you can't describe the business outcome that's coming from your project, then you really have no clue whether it's going to make its way up and get approved, right? Because VPs of finance buy business outcomes. They don't buy technical, you know, Speeds and speeds, yet that's what most technical reps sell. Yeah, I, I I use sort of a different way of approaching it, but very similar. Which is, you know, I, your job as a seller is to identify and understand what the most important thing is to the buyer. And if you don't know what that most important thing is, then you have no idea about what the path is to help them get it. And and that's yeah. You know, if you're trying to keep it really simple, that's it. So outcomes could be among the most important thing, but there's always well. It's sort of well. I'll ask you the question because my experience of selling you know very large deals was that in every deal there was always one thing that was the most important thing. They, they might have a list of requirements as long as your arm, but when you really boil it down to it, there was one thing that was their most important thing. And if you couldn't do that, you weren't going to get the deal. And for me, that's always been such a part of, of pipeline reviews and, and uh, coaching people on discovery and qualification is, you know, what's, what is this one thing that's most important and, and who's it most important to? Right. 
and I think Andy, that's so critical because you know what I find is many you know many reps selling technology focus on the technical campaign, and I always tell sales teams. You know, there's always two campaigns going on in your deal. There's a technical campaign and there's a financial political campaign. Mm-hmm. And when you say, hey, you know, what's the one thing? Well, that's my technical buyer, but he may not actually be the person approving the funds. He often isn't. Mm-hmm. So I often remember, remind people, this is why it's complex. There's many stakeholders in a complex sales campaign. The number yep. is probably close to 6.5 key decision makers in a deal. And you know, one of the ways I can qualify with a sales team, whether they're running a good sales campaign, is how wide and deep they're actually selling. Mm-hmm. Are they selling? That's where the relationship map comes in. Are you selling to a technical buyer and technical recommender? Have you met the financial decision maker? Do you have a coach who's influencing? And, yep. you know, reps' heads get, you know, their eyes get starry when they go, hey, Jeff, like, that's way, how am I going to figure all that out? Well, that's your job, right? Yeah. Well, so go through those three questions that you ask to make sure people understand the relationship map. So the uh, the questions are, have you met the key decision makers in person? Yes or no? Are they pro-neutral? You know, how do they feel about your solution? And are they, where are they in the power base? So it's basically, it's a, it's a, you know, I would do a, I would do these big rock reviews with sales teams and I go, Let, let's talk about, you know, who you're talking to. And if it's a big camp, you know, a big account, they'd pull out the org chart and there'd be 40 mm. people on the org chart. And I go, well, no, I want to know, you know, who's the technical recommender? Who's the technical decision maker? Who's the financial right. buyer? Do you have a coach? You know, is there a Fox? Who's your partners? And then I just want to know in each box, have you met them in person? How do they feel about you? And are they in the power base? And I could tell a tremendous amount about whether we were going to win that deal around how <laughs> wide and deep we were selling. And often, because I, you know, I'm I'm talking to technical sales reps often who who love to talk about technology to the technical recommender and technical decision maker. Who, who, who's, who, whose budget is it? I don't know. You know, have you met them? Well, no, I haven't. Do you have a coach? Well, what's a coach? So as it turns out, there's a lot of key stakeholders in a complex sales campaign. And as a sales team, you need to cover off those people. You need to know about how they feel about you. You need to know what their position is in the deal and what influence they have on your deal. And then you have to actually go and meet them, which gets a little trickier these days in in the world of COVID where we can't always meet people. It's hard to build relationships, but the relationship map is part of the rapid assessment review in the first module, right? You know, Mm -hmm. I pull that out. We take a look at that. In 15 minutes, I can tell whether this deal is qualified or not. And if it's not, we send them back before we go do a deep sales strategy review, because right. no point spending time on the sales strategy if you know you haven't even qualified whether this thing is uh, is going to happen. So that's part of the approach. Yeah. yeah, and I think on the relationship, the other thing that's and sort of building on what you're saying is is and you've sort of alluded to it is that it's not enough. Well, you have to sort of change your perspective as a seller and understand that everybody is coming at this decision with two different perspectives in mind. What's in it for the company and what's in it for me personally? And if you don't understand both those perspectives, you know, you think about it, if there's 6.5 stakeholders, there's really 13 stakeholders because everybody's two. And 
and you need to understand both perspectives because you're dealing with human beings and human beings' motivations in some cases might be more driven by what's in it for them than what's in it for the company. And I've certainly had experience where dealing with stakeholders where they say and key decision makers is like, well, I think this is great for the company, but yeah, this is not great for me. <laughs> and then the follow-up question was, okay, well, how, how can we help you with that, right? Yeah. Because totally. if it's not good for somebody, if they're a key stakeholder, they can stop a deal cold. I totally agree. Totally agree. And and that's why as I go through the big rock review, you know, understanding the relationships and the dynamics is all part of it. And and I find when a sales rep is running a great sales campaign, they know the interpersonal dynamics of their buyers. They know they mm-hmm. know broadly who they are, and they know sometimes in gory detail over beer or lunch or dinner or reference account visits, what yeah. you know, what drives those individuals. The reps who are quoting and hoping are running technical campaigns to technical buyers and really are often oblivious from the fact that there's other dynamics going on and then they wonder often why they lose their deal. We had the best technical solution, yet we lost. Must have been price. Right. So it's <laughs> it's these are complex comp, you know, these are complex sales campaigns. And uh, as they say, you know, we're starting to do a better job of training reps how to do it, but we we don't do a very good job with sales leaders to help them inspect and assess the these deals before yeah. they get into the forecast in the first place. Yeah, which is is always the problem. So is that all, does that all make sense? Well, yeah, it's just painful from experience that. So yeah, you, so you have ten modules you've laid out in the book. Uh, first module about deal structure and economics. Yeah, you know, and make sure the rep understands what they're selling. You know, for for me, and we sort of touched on this before, is you know, when I get to that stage, do that that first that's where I really want to make sure that the rep understands what the most important things are for the the buyer. Um because that really dictates what they're selling, right? Is not really sure, yeah, you know, if I'm just pitching a solution, that's one thing, but if I'm trying to solve a problem, then I need to understand what that problem is first. So but yeah, if the reps are at that I've sure you've experienced this countless times as I have. I do this type of review. Yeah, so yeah, what, what's what's the most important thing to this buyer? What are they trying to achieve? What's the outcome? And you'd be, well, you wouldn't be surprised how infrequently you get a good answer. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You know, they have a budget, they have a technical problem, we're trying to solve it. You know. The- well, yeah, that's sort of where this, and I, not to, you sort of use this term in the book, but that's why people sort of, you know, look down the noses at Bant because it's just that superficial, you know, yeah, I know, I have this assortment of facts I know. They've got, yes, they've got budget. Yes, this person has authority, but I don't understand anything, right? I know these these things, but I have no understanding of what they mean and how this is going to apply in this case. Uh, just have to go much deeper. Yeah, totally agree. And then, you know, part of, and I appreciate Bant's been around forever and people Go, hey, Jeff, Bant's old news. Well, you know, we've we've kind of tuned it up for the current economic times. And it's, you know, do they have a budget? Has the budget been released? It's just a simple question like that. Well, my, my customer said he has the budget. Well, the beginning of this recession, stuff was in the budget that was never mm-hmm. going to be spent. Has it been released? Well, I don't know. Well, let's go find out, right? What's changed in the customer's uh, approval process? Well, nothing's changed. You, you know, in recession- right. well, this- Things always change about the the budget. And even if that guy's been buying from you or gal for five years, in a yep. recession, 
their approval process has changed. You need to go find out what's changed. Pretty straightforward. Or or CFO just holds purchase orders because the quarter is going to be bad. I mean, I, I, I <laughs> one time HP was a customer of mine. They were notorious for that. Oh, managing earnings. If you so you knew that if you were in danger, if you had a, a rep that had a deal with HP, an opportunity with HP, and it was sort of migrating toward the last month of the quarter. Yeah, no, it had to come in before. Because if it came in in you know March June yeah. <laughs> or whatever your fiscal quarter was, or that was HP's fiscal quarter, it just high chance it wasn't, yeah. wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I I, uh, I totally agree. So 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 Bant is still you know it's just some of the fundamentals: budget approve, you know, budget authority, um, need or business outcome, and timing. Those four things are just table stakes from my perspective. Uh, that. Yeah, well, I think it's it's like a first level of qualification, right? It's yeah. this is this is for me it's information gathering because you know to your point about is the budget been released? I think it's a great question, but it really the budget's not going to be released till there's a business case as we talked about, right? So and yeah, it just depends where you are in the in your process whether you've gotten to that point where you can do that, but yeah, it's an important thing. It's, and I think the other thing we also touched on before, which is I think is also important for sellers to keep in mind, even in big deals, and this is where the business case and the budget comes back, is no, there's a study done, I don't know, eight years or so ago, and I'm, I don't think it's probably changed, some, though I'm sure it changed in COVID, but you know, as a rule of thumb, is that it was only like a quarter of you know, sort of business purchases were actually budgeted at the start of a fiscal year. Right. right. So... If you've got a business case, you've got a compelling reason that you can help somebody achieve something that's really important to them, they'll find budget. Yeah. But you, totally. have, to, you have to have the business case. I totally agree. Strategically relevant, tactically urgent, rapid time to value are part of what goes into the business case. And not everything gets well, funded, even if it gets budgeted. Yeah. Right? Well, I think that's the thing that's so critical that, you know, the time to value is, is I think that's, even though it became more front and center during COVID, the fact is it's always been important. Yes, sir. Right? I mean, I found as a smaller company competing against, you know, multi-billion-dollar corporations when I was selling, you know, large deals for small companies, is that was one of our advantages. Actually, is that we were more flexible and agile in terms of sizing the deal to get a shorter time to value right. than the big guys who were yeah. more concerned with that. You know, they had bigger quotas. They had they had to chew things off in bigger bites. Yeah, um, that became something that you know you consciously look at. Because it's not just making the deal smaller. What you're saying is, I'm going to make it smaller, but I'm going to show you a verified return much more quickly. I, I totally agree. You know, the other part of that, of course, is risk, right? And and certainly in tough yep. economic times, customers worry more about risk than perhaps when, you know, when you have tons of money and money's not a problem, people will take some flyers. But when money gets tight and you have a limited amount of budget to to, to fund all the things you want to fund, Thinking about what the risk of this decision is from the customer's perspective is important. And we talk about risk a little later on in the sales strategy review. But most reps right. go, you know, what could cause this project to fail? I don't know. Well, I promise you, your customer's thinking about that. Why aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, so, right. We, you is know, it? we get into risk a little later. You know, the, the uh, rapid assessment review is 50 minutes at the front end to help the rep and his sales leader understand or her sales leader understand kind of what's the broad strokes of the deal? Is this thing going to happen? Do you know enough about your deal? Yes, we do. Okay. Then we go into a sales strategy where we go through the rest of the steps 
and we dig much deeper into you know those things that we'll talk about. So, well, and I think with the rapid review, you you've surfaced so many things, right? And it doesn't have to be detailed all the time. It's like, do they know enough about their account? Um, and I sort of have this rule of thumb that I developed over the years that you know the there's sort of an inverse relationship between the degree to which the rep got defensive about how much they knew about the account and the opportunity, the odds of it actually happening. Yeah. Uh, right. I'm sure. You've been in those meetings where reps you know, get red in the face, swear they know what's going on. It's like, yeah. that, that, nope. that's the BS meter. You know, my BS meter over time, 3000 forecast calls, it gets pretty good. And I go that, yeah. that dog don't hunt, right. That, uh, yeah. well, the, the more insistent they became, that's really going to happen. It's like, Nope. Yeah. <laughs> You're just thinking yeah. to myself, yeah, let's take this one out of the pipeline. This yeah, is never going to happen. <laughs> I, I totally agree, and and that's why you know, Andy, early on, you know, I, I've been I've been doing this big rock review process probably for five plus years now, and at the beginning, it was a one hour review with the sales team where we went through all the modules. And what I discovered is, you know, just getting just scheduling up five or six people on a review can be tough to do. Mm-hmm. And I'd get into seven minutes into the review and go, this thing's not qualified. Like, let's not spend any more talking about a deal we don't know enough about. So what I've then done is I've really broken out the big rock review into two components. The rapid mm-hmm. assessment review, that's yep. the rep and the manager, 15 minutes. And then if it's qualified and if the rep knows enough, then we can do 45 minutes in a sales strategy review. And, you know, you may recall Miller Hyman in the and Blue Shoots, Blue, blue Sh- Blue, Blue sheets, sheets and red flags. Well, I didn't didn't get, didn't get my expense reports unless I filled out my blue sheets and turned them in. Yes. Well, well, <laughs> you know, this goes back to 1980. As a new sales guy, sales trainee with the old Packard, I, I remember sitting in on a on a blue sheet review, and it was a day long affair. I thought this is fantastic. Wow, did I ever learn so much? But flash forward a few years, and nobody has a day to work on big deal reviews, and that's really what drove me to do the big rock review. I said, as a sales leader for the country, these are big deals, but I want to, in one hour, be able to tell whether this thing should be in the forecast or not. And that's really what the big rock review is, is one hour, Mm -hmm. 15 minutes for the rapid assessment review, 45 minutes for the sales strategy review. If the ref starts pontificating or go off on tangents, I know this thing is not very crisp. Part of the sales leader's role is to wind them back in and go, no, like, let's not go there yet. Let's just go through the process here. And that's mm-hmm. where I get accused of being an engineer because it's like, like, let's just make this process very repeatable. But after the reps had done a few, you know, they understood the value and they'd go, hey, Jeff, like, mm-hmm. let's review my deal because it's a coaching opportunity. The rep learns something. I always said the purpose of the review was that the rep would end up with a better sales campaign after the review than when, when they started. And if the reps see value in it, they get an extra set of eyes on their deal. They they yep. start to highlight the stuff they don't know. You know, most sales reps want to close the gaps and and run better sales campaigns because that's how they earn commissions. Um, but nobody has everybody's so stressed for time. But I go as a sales leader, I show you how to take ten percent of your time focused on the biggest deals in your business mm-hmm. and what could give you a bigger return than spending ten percent of your time inspecting, assessing, and coaching your team around the big deals. Right. And when I say it like that, leaders go, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Even though they're incredibly busy, right? critical few, maintenance many, there's a lot of stuff they're doing that they shouldn't be doing. They've just been doing it by habit. And I right. show them, you know, in the fourth module, inspect, assess, coach, and implement 
how to right. carve out 10% of their time to implement a new intentional and deliberate process. And yeah. I've done this many times and they don't go, you know, Jeff, that's BS. They go, wow, okay, there's some, there's some, some cool ideas in there. <sighs> yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, I was telling, sharing the story, a similar story with, with uh, a CEO uh, a few weeks ago, which is, yeah, one company I worked for, we always sold big deals. This is, you know, communications equipment, uh, you know, in today's dollars, multiple millions of dollars worth of deals. And every Monday for an hour with the CEO, big deal review. Yeah. And structured a little differently than what you have here, but in essence, somewhat the same. And what was critical is that around the table were the CEO and all the VPs of the major departments. And the salesperson got up and presented the account executive. It could be the account manager if it was an mm -hmm. ongoing deal. And woe unto those VPs who weren't actively supporting getting the deals done, uh, whether it's you know, a renewal or whether it's a new deal. Yeah, those you spoke straight to that as the top executive staff, and it was so effective because you got everybody pulling together. You got great perspectives from you know a variety of different people and variety of backgrounds. You know, at the senior level to input into the deals, and they were just hugely effective. So, so here's you know here's a story, Andy, that really uh, precipitated me doing this right. I had an inkling that big deal reviews was important because I'd done them and 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 just mm -hmm. saw all the value. Sure. And so rather than do a survey, this is, you know, when I retired for the second time, I picked up the phone. I called 40 sales leaders, you know, VPs, GMs, guys who ran, guys and gals who ran 40 biggest partners and vendors in Canada. And I asked them this question, do you have an intentional and deliberate process to inspect your big deals? Uh, and I was shocked at the answer. And the answer was, well, we have the forecast. I go, no, the forecast forecast call doesn't count. Out of the 40, 37 of them, by the time we got explicit, said, no, I really don't have a very specific process. We have instinct and experience. And I went, wow, that's that's amazing. And it turns out one of the three who said he had a process became my first customer. So you would think that most organizations are doing this. And I think most you know, depending on the size of the organization, most senior leaders assume the first-line first sales leaders oh, great have point. the process to do this. Great and what point. happens yep. is when times get tough, you know, the, the sales manager reporting into the director, reporting to the VP, reporting into the, you know, the senior VP, when they start missing their number, they start going, hey, you know, we should try to pick a few deals and take a look at them. And they discover that there is not this inspection process going on. So oh, I, that's I that's my experience. I say this: ninety-five percent of all sales here have no process to do this. Yet this is what they get paid to do every day. Yeah, no, I don't know if you agree with that number, but yeah, my my experience as a consultant over twenty years dealing with sales teams, exact same thing. I can't begin to imagine or remember how many times I had the conversation with the CEO where it's well, we do that. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm sure we do that. I've never inspected yeah. it. But I'm sure it happened. Yeah, I'm sure sure we do that. And it's like, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. Whether yeah. it's whether it's this type of deal, whether it's a lost deal review, lost business review, one business review, uh, 
yeah, there's all these assumptions that take place at sort of the sea level that surely this is taking place because it just makes sense. And then you go in and look at it and it's like, well, no, it's not. It, it, I, I, you know, again, it's a dirty little secret. People get promoted. You assume they know how to do this. Most people aren't structured. Sales is. Yeah. Well, we haven't trained them. That's right. It's yeah. People aren't going to know intuitively. That's what they should do. Uh, some will, but, but most people, somebody just needs to teach them. And that's once exactly. they learn, they'll do it. Um, yeah. So that's the value of, of your book to help people. Yeah. Learn well, how to do this type of thing. I had this, uh, I delivered my program last week and this, you know, the CEO is about a hundred million dollar business. It was, you know, they do um, large engineering projects. So not really tech, like we think of it SAS and, mm -hmm. but it, they're sure. engineering, they're technical people. And the CEOs comment to me, I said, you know, how accurate are your forecast? He goes, you know, that's our problem. Like we have so many deals in the pipeline that are actually not real deals. And so when we get to the end of the month or the quarter, all these deals that were there disappear. And it turns out the, fun, the, the funnel, the, the, the pipeline looks good, but there's no inspection of what's in it. And when sales reps are behind quota, stuff goes in that they have, you know, they live in hope. They don't want to face the music at the beginning of the quarter that they're going to miss their forecast or they're going to miss their quota. So they put stuff in. Yeah. It's all the way to the top. And we, you know, art, science, and fiction. It's the fiction stuff that gets everybody in trouble, right? Well, I think also one of the things that's that you know, sort of exacerbates the problem in terms of the forecast is given that so much of what we talk about these days is is software sales, is yeah, you sold hardware at the start of your career. Yeah. Uh, as did I for a good chunk of my career, as well as services. But there was a real cost of missing a forecast because you had purchased inventory. You, know, you mm -hmm. had People waiting to make product. It wasn't all outsourced then. You actually had factories and yes, overhead. Totally. And, yep. And the impact of not hitting a forecast, dramatically different than if you were software, where you don't have the same cost structure, inherent cost structure behind it, than you did with uh, manufacturing. And so I think that, at least for me, the discipline of, of not that I was perfect on forecast by any means, but but the discipline of learning that we had to be right because the impact was so extreme if we didn't. Um, yeah, we just learned differently. And so I think that you know, we need to have something for our, our SaaS sales leaders so they understand the impact of missing the forecast. Yeah. Now, you know, I think if you work for a publicly traded company, forecast becomes pretty important because oh, at sure. some point – the CFO calls a number to the street and he, you need to meet it, right? Even if the cost right. of goods is low. So, uh, and, so. And, but some of those were public companies, but yeah, you, know, you felt the real impact internally, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Sure. Analysts are, analysts are upset, but, uh, you know, if you've got, you've just committed, you know, $10 million to inventory, that's not going to be turned into a product that you can get revenue off of. That's a problem. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that's a, a huge challenge. And, you know, hardware hasn't gone away. There's still companies who spend time selling hardware. You know, they can't get chips today. So, you know, they, they're, oh, they, yeah. and you think have about all that. sorts of right. hardware yeah, problems. Yeah, auto manufacturers, all these people. I mean, I used to spend, you know, forecast meetings with our operations manager. Yeah. 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 yeah, we had assembly lines set up both domestically and internationally and uh, labor and materials. And so yeah. it's just, different right yeah. but it does teach you that you really to your point about the whole book is you really have to understand what's going on 
right? It's, it's, as a sales leader, it's, it's not enough to, you can't uh, take things at face value. You have to inspect. You have to ask multiple questions multiple ways. Uh, you have to be just dead solid serious about making sure people understand, to your point earlier, is do people really understand the account? Because you know, one of my favorite questions that I ask is, you can go through a pipeline and say, okay, for this opportunity, so on your next interaction with them, what are the ex- value are they expecting to receive from you that's going to move them closer to making a decision? What do they need from us at this point in time? And it doesn't seem like a hard question, but it's a question that rarely gets answered uh, correctly or at all. But that's the thing is, okay, well, then you don't really know the account yet, right? So let's, let's dive into this. What's, what's missing, right? Why don't we understand this? What questions haven't we asked? Because you have to, I said, this is, I think, for a sales manager, it's such an important part. Yeah, it's tied to your forecast, but also it's tied to helping people get better at what they do. Yeah, totally. And, you know, in my training program, I asked sales leaders, can you name the top 10 steps in a complex sales campaign? And whether it's hardware, software, services, you know, the customer goes on a journey. That's why it's called a campaign, mm-hmm. you know, and most, you know, most sales leaders don't get all 10. And I go like, the customer is going to go through all 10. If you're going to miss them, your competitor might not. But, you know, things they miss are often, do you have a competitive edge? You know, what's that? Um, what are you doing to partner? Like, how are you demonstrating value to, to both you and the customer around mm-hmm. partnering. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. What which about is, which is a great a great part you had in the book? I mean, I think that people don't think enough about the impact and the power of partnering. Um, it, and not necessarily just from a resale channel perspective, but you know, there are lots of other people you can partner with or other organizations to partner with in a deal. It could be an outside services provider, it could be somebody that's you know already involved in the account. Uh, yeah, when I was working big deals, I always tried to make sure I had two companies bidding my product if I was going through channels. Yeah, of course. Um, of course. Because I wanted to increase my odds. So you, this partner thing is a way to being creative about bringing someone else into the deal that can help you increase your odds of winning is is a great way to go. Exactly right. And uh, you know, I was always on the vendor side. I was never a partner. And so you know, we we used to hear some reps who were the you know. The lone wolf would say, like, the partner doesn't know anything about our product. And they go, well, no one's going to know more about your product than you. You're the vendor. They have mm-hmm. multiple products across multiple vendors. But they might have access to power that you don't. They might have a buying vehicle that you don't. There's many yeah. reasons to partner beyond just they know my product and can demonstrate better than I. And reps would go, I never really thought about that. And so I think partner, the ecosystem can bring value to a campaign beyond just their technical ability to, to talk about their product. I, I talk about things like customer success. What are you doing to ensure customer success before you get your purchase order? Mm-hmm. You know, like straightforward question. Oh, I don't know. You know, at, at IBM, this is a thousand years ago, they talk about sell, install, support. Mm-hmm. And if you're selling to an annuity customer where you hope to sell a second time, you got to sell it, you got to install it, you got to support it. Until you do all those three things well, you don't get an opportunity to sell again. Oh, that's all related to customer success. And that's where where risk comes in. What's the risk? You know, what are the risks in this deal? What could cause this deal to go off the rails once Mm -hmm. they've bought it? 
If you don't think about that, that's where the implementation gets into trouble. I've already discounted well, well, pre-sale and post-sale. I think pre-sale you know, and post-sale exactly. I mean, so the the customer's assessment of the risk of doing business with you, whether you're implementation risk, financial risk, whatever, you have the same analysis of the customer, right? Do they have the resources and the the wherewithal to actually make the system a success? Totally. Have you included training in the deal? Well, we'll take we'll worry about training afterwards. What about implementation services? Mm-hmm. Who's going to deliver them? Haven't thought about that stuff. Well, then you clearly haven't thought about customer success. And right. after you've deeply discounted your deal to win it, <laughs> money's going to have to come yeah. from somewhere and the customer's not then going to be prepared to give you more money. So that's one Just that come- always you know, surprises reps when we talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, Jeff, we go on and on, but unfortunately we've reached the end of time. So, um, well, not the end of time, but the end of our time today. So uh, if people want to learn more about the book or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, the best way to do that is to go to salesleadersonly.com forward slash sales enablement. So I've, mm-hmm. I've built a, a bit of a landing page for your audience, Andy. And what they'll do okay. is they'll find some of these assets here. They'll find the big deal roadmap we talked about. These are the 10 okay. steps in a complex M. They can download it. They'll find the rapid assessment uh, review, the mm-hmm. questions. They'll also find a document I called a the top 10 questions you should be asking, but probably aren't. So they're all free. They're all there. They're available to your uh, to your audience. Salesleadersonly.com. That's my website, forward slash sales enablement. I thought sales right. enablement podcast would be too much for your audience. So <laughs> no, sales, enablement, sales enablement, they'll find Perfect. it. And then they can explore the website. They, 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 on that page, they can figure out how to reach me. And I'm more than happy to talk to them. As you can tell, I could talk about this stuff all day long. Um, but the, the program is only four hours because, you know, the, the trick is the, the trick is anybody can take two weeks to, to do something. And most sales leaders don't have three days in their schedule right. today for training. So we teach the program in half a day, uh, typically an afternoon. And um, it's a pretty rapid pace, but you know, the, there's a lot of stuff in it for sure. They can always go back and look at the book. Exactly. All right, Jeff, thank you so much. Andy, my pleasure. Really, really enjoyed being here. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Jeff Goldstein, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.